y'all. Welcome to another episode of Nutrition Pearls, the podcast from NASPGAN's Council for Pediatric Nutrition Professionals, or CPNP. I am your host, Bailey Koch, pediatric GI dietitian at GI Care for Kids in Atlanta, Georgia, and Atlanta Pediatric Nutrition. Joining me today is my co-host, Jen Smith, pediatric GI dietitian at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Jen, how are you? Hi, Bailey. I'm doing well. I am so excited for us to be able to share this episode with our listeners. It was great. And it's one of my favorites. Yes, it's really a great episode. So I'm going to get right on into it, if that's okay with you, Bailey. I have known our guest today for many years through her research, and we are both on the medical advisory board for ntforibd.org, which is a nonprofit website that provides nutrition education and resources for providers who work with patients with IBD and patients and their families who live with IBD. Because we're both on this board, I've had the privilege of being part of meetings with her. And let me say, she is so insightful, so knowledgeable about nutrition and IBD. And the dietitian that we're having as our guest today is Rodam Sigal Bonet. Rodam is a clinical and research dietitian based at Wolfson Medical Center in Holton, Israel. She holds the distinction of being the founder of DECO, the dietitian committee within the European Crohn's and Colitis Organization. Additionally, she is the co-founder of the Crohn's Disease Exclusion Diet, or CDED, and has played a pivotal role in leading clinical trials in this field. Currently, she is working on her PhD at Amsterdam University, focusing on the role of CDED in the management of Crohn's disease. Rotom is also a member of the Porto Group, an expert panel specializing in pediatric inflammatory bowel disease within the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or ESPGEN. Sounds fantastic. Let's get on to the show. On to the show. Welcome, Rotom. We are so excited to have you on this episode of Nutrition Pearls, the podcast. Rotom is our first international guest, so that is another bonus for us. And you recently had a publication in Inflammatory Bowel Diseases entitled The Crohn's Disease Exclusion Diet, A Comprehensive Review of the Evidence, Implementation Strategies, Practical Guidance, and Future Directions. So I feel like this is so timely because this is exactly what we want to talk to you about for this show. And in reading it, I felt like it was awesome. And we're going to hit on so much of that information during this show today. And I definitely recommend any of our listeners to read this article. But anyways, we have so much to discuss today. We're going to get right into it, if that's all right. First of all, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very honored and happy to be here with you and to have a discussion and to tell you more about my journey in the CDD or my journey as a dietitian. How did you get involved with working with patients with IBD? Yes, so my first job was with Professor Ari Ari Levine from Volkswagen Medical Center. And I used to start working with him on the diet and on IBD in general. So I started from those kind of patients, even though I didn't plan and I just stuck in the passion of trying to investigate the role of diet in IBD and especially in Crohn's disease when we really were kind of pioneers in this field because we knew about EN, but now we know you can hear many diet and many groups that are investigating diets, but then no one discussed about it. And when I talked about diet, everyone like, yeah, yeah, diet. Okay, you can Mm -hmm. eat whatever you want. And 
I remember, especially during the time in the deco, which I guess we will discuss it a little bit later, when I felt that I really need to shout out, hey, we have a role for diet, but it took me a while to understand it as well. So it was kind mm-hmm. of a process when I realized that I really passionate about it and I want to understand what is the mechanism behind it, how we can help patients with diet. And when I saw it work every time, and I have to say that I'm still getting very excited with every patient, that I see that it just improve how they feel with diet. It just, it blow my mind every time. IBD patients were my first, the first and last patients that I deal with. So wow, that was just yeah. fate that put you together with that group because I feel like you're such an advocate and you've pushed our profession with Deco and some of the things that you're doing. Yeah, I think that you're on the cutting edge. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so can you describe the Crohn's disease exclusion diet and how it was developed? How long it took to develop? Yes, of course. And first of all, it's a great question because it's a journey. And we knew for many years that exclusive internal nutrition works pretty well in induction of emission, but we understood that this is very difficult treatment and patients are struggling with that and we need to support them. And we don't know what to do for the long term. We don't know what will be the exit strategy. And we know that when they're going back to it, we can see the inflammation coming back up. So we thought that we need to find a different solution. We understood that diet works, but the question was how? And in those days, we, we didn't know exactly how it works. And there were several groups that every group had their own hypothesis uh, behind it and what they assumed that the mechanism by EN works. And we saw also that there is a very nice study, the Johnson trial, that showed that 50% with free diet was not enough to, to show the, the same effect that we'll see with exclusive. So we thought that the main mechanism might be the ex- exclusivity when we are just exclude the dietary components from the diet or exclude everything from the diet and just having the formula. But it's not the specific formula. It's not something that we are adding that. Maybe it's something that we are just taking out. Right. And then when we just went o- to overview all the, the evidence that we had then we saw that we have like epidemiological studies to show that there are some association between some dietary components and increase in the risk of having IBD or with reduced risk with IBD if we are eating a lot of fruit and vegetables and so on. And we tried to take this one, but it wasn't enough because we felt we need something more to support it. And then we dive in into and the animal models. So there are not studies that we done, but there were so many studies that show that there is some effect. And then you can understand what will be the mechanism behind the inflammation and what is the association with the dietary components. And we found that there were several animal studies and animal models to show that there are specific dietary components that can affect either the intestinal barrier function or the microbiome. And then we try to, to map it and to put it together and to see what we should exclude and or what, what is the, the idea behind it. And then what was interesting that the same ingredients that affected the host with the gut barrier function were the same ingredient that affected the microbiome as well. 
So it makes it much more easier to develop a diet that you just need to exclude all those dietary components that are potentially pro-inflammatory, which we didn't know. And we still don't know if all of sure. them are pro-inflammatory for every patient. But we just said, okay, let's take out everything that might cause inflammation and just add some neutral foods and let's see what's going on. And then the first patient, Ari gave him in the, in his private clinic, he just gave him a list of several, it wasn't the same at all. Like it used to call the leaky diet and, and just gave him a list of foods that he needed to avoid. And then in Israel, when we wanted to provide patients with the formula, they needed to have some insurance and approval and so on. So it took a while and he just told him, okay, just Try this until you find the formula. And then when you buy the formula, just have the formula together with it or just have only the formula and so on. The, the patient didn't even see the addition. It just It was in the clinic and it just gave him a list. And then the patient came back after a few weeks and it was everything was okay. The inflammation went down. It felt better. The CRP went back down. Then we didn't have carpotectin, but we have like a CRP and so on. And everything was okay. And he said, oh, wow, you saw that? I told you you need to take the formula. It will help you. And the patient said, oh, but I didn't take the formula. Oh, they just did the diet stuff. Yes, I just did the list that you gave me. And the mechanism of the diet is the exclusion. So now when we have the all the what you should include, we didn't have this then we just said what you need to exclude as i explained you before so we just put a list of what you don't need to eat <laughs> this is that was the idea and then it, it worked and then we said okay we need to take it out and to see what's going on then we started to develop to um, and to try to put more foods we wanted to secure a protein because we designed it at a base um, at the beginning for children so we wanted to secure protein and we wanted to improve the microbiome. So we tried to work it out and to find some studies to support how we can support the microbiome and so on. So we added food that we recommended to consume. At the beginning, it wasn't mandatory. And then we started to design some kind of a diet. And I think that the first two studies, the first, uh, the retrospective one, the um, IBD in 2014, the first study that we just published our experience, it was with just a list of <laughs> ingredients that they shouldn't eat uh, without... I remember reading that and thinking, where is this? Where's the training for this? I want to do this. So that's, yeah. that's yeah. interesting that it was a journey and it wasn't protocolized yeah. in the beginning. It was just... It was something that sounds works. like it was, yeah, it was just tr getting the science behind it, but then it grew. It sounds like it, it grew over time into something yeah. more protocolized. I remember reading that article and wondering, like, where did they get this? How did they decide, right? I, mean, so and, I was like, shredded carrots. What does that mean? <laughs> because it had just right. a list of the different types yeah. of foods. But, but I, because, I loved it and anxiously waited for the, the next set of publications. But because so. of that, I didn't feel comfortable utilizing it because no, I not yet, yeah feel like I had the knowledge base to answer a lot of the questions that were going to, that I was asking myself, truthfully, <laughs> you know. And true. And, and then when we published, we didn't want yet because we wanted to investigate it in randomized controlled trial. Absolutely. And we knew that since we want to compare it to EEN, it will be very challenging if we will just publish the diet and everyone yes. will know the diet. They won't join the RCT because they can have EEN and they don't want to use EEN if they can use the diet. 
So yeah. we didn't publish the diet and we got a lot of very envy and people were really upset about it, but it, we just wanted to finish the RCT in order to be able to understand if the diet really works or if it just doesn't, you know, we just wanted to have the proof. It's very um, responsible, Rodham. <laughs> now I can say it, but when everyone <laughs> hates you, oh, you need to tell me the diet. And I, I want to tell you, but then I have to kill you. <laughs> just <kidding>. <laughs> 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 we really wanted to share it with everyone, but we didn't understand yet how impact it yeah. would have. And we knew that from clinics, because we use we use it in clinics, like I think more than 12 years. And we knew from our practice that it works, but it's not enough. It's never enough to say, oh, I have a treatment that works. It's not enough. You need to show it that it really works. And we wanted also to see that it's not something that we are imagining. It really works. So it was very important to put it together. And then what happened is that we had the, um, the RCT and we started with the enrolling only in Israel. And then we met Johan van Limbergen from Canada from in, at one of the meetings. And we started to, to discuss and he said, oh, I really want to join the study. And we tried to, I think it took something like two years to add them into the trial. Um, but then we felt that we need to put the diet in a different structure in order to make sure that they are really doing the diet as we are doing it. Because in Israel, I went to every center and I discussed with the dietitian every time and I were in really tight monitoring, tight contact with every dietitian that did the diet and they used to call contact me for any questions. And I felt that I'm on it and I'm controlling it and I can provide the support, but we didn't know if it will take it out, it will be the same. And then maybe they have different food and they will not be able to implement it in Canada and so on. So we That's also to- very responsible. Like, will you be able to do it if I'm not holding your hand? Like would yeah. other people be able to do? Yeah. yeah. And very so thoughtful. Really the, the process that y'all used, very thoughtful as well to get to where you are. <laughs> right. Yeah. To structure it in a way that we will be able to implement it in different places or with different food and so on. And then we came up with the mandatory food idea, which I have to say that now I don't like this at all because what happens that everyone are focusing on the mandatory foods, which are not mandatory for the success of the study at all. Interesting. The, the main mechanism of the diet and the first two studies were without the mandatory foods. The mandatory food came after just to try to structure the diet in order to be able to implement it and to see if it really works in different places and really to make sure that patients have enough protein if they're children. We didn't want to secure the growth and we wanted to support the microbiome. So this was a deviant. But what came up? is that I received like tons of questions. I can't eat a banana. Don't eat a banana. I'm sure, sure. yeah. And but yeah. it became, you know, like the focus. So I, I became very, I struggled with it a lot. And now I approach Neste, which they at some point bought the diet and make it as a module life program. And when they did it, they just put in front all the, um, the mandatory food as you know, like they were in front of everything and I asked them now to change it. And now that as far as I understand, they're working on changing the terminology to recommended rather than mm. mandatory. So yeah. if 
the, if I need to send some message, it's that it, it doesn't matter if patients are eating the mandatory food or not. It's matter if they're excluding the food that's ingredients that are potentially pro-inflammatory. So this is the whole story. Beyond. That's great to know because yeah, that's awesome. That was one of the things that actually confused me: the mandatory foods and the amounts. Yes, I, why to bananas? Why to potatoes? Yeah, right. That, that's that's exactly what I said. <laughs> I, I didn't understand. You know, I, how did they come up with this? <laughs> Five strawberries. If the patient can eat more, he can eat more. They did just right. to give them this. As is- well as in pediatrics, dealing with picky eaters or kids that have fit or other disordered eating as a result of the the IBD, the pain, not being able to consume, like you said, a, a banana. I can't eat a banana. So I'm glad that you clarified that. <laughs> And another question that came up a lot, it's really regarding the fruit and vegetables, why we chose those fruit and vegetables and why only five strawberries and so on. And another important message that we should come up, the idea is that we knew that patients are avoiding fibers and we used to recommend them to avoid fiber when they had active disease. But with time and with more evidence, we understood that we are doing wrong because we can see that it can affect the microbiome, which we are trying to recover. And what will help the recovery is the consumption of fruit and vegetables. So nowadays we are trying to recommend more fruit and vegetables, maybe to try to change the texture and so on. But here what's important is the role of dietitian because the dietitian should guide the patient. And at the beginning, when we started with the diet, we were really afraid that patients will start taking care of themselves. They will just follow the instructions. They will take the handout and then they will start eating fruit and vegetables. They have obstruction. They will say the diet doesn't work. But it's not the story, okay? Because we really need to be guided by a dietitian. And if patients can tolerate fruit and vegetables, it's great and it's amazing. We just wanted to make sure that we are introducing some kind of normal amount of fiber that we do think that fiber are good, but we understand that it can cause some symptoms when they are with active disease. So if dietitians are available for them and expert dietitians in NBD, of course, and then they can guide them. And if they can eat or tolerate more fruit and vegetables, they are more than welcome to do it. But, you know, it's, it's really, I think this emphasizes how dietitians are important because in some patients are doing following the diet on their own. And I, even in clinic, I received many patients that are coming, oh yeah, I did a diet that I read in, we had some article in the, the news here, right? It's, it's in, in newspaper. It's not even a, something, a journey or something, it's something that is more professional. Just, oh, I read it and I just took this out, took this out. And if you're doing a diet without guidance from dietitian, it's really problematic in terms of even, you know, like deficiencies that can come up and the diet is without calcium, for instance. So if I recommend a diet without um, formula, I will do recommend them to consume the calcium supplements and many times also multivitamin, you know, the addition yeah. decision. We need Absolutely. Our voice here. And it sounds like in putting something out that could be consumed by the public without a professional it sounds like you're being very intentional to be conservative so that it didn't potentially cause harm or people could potentially feel some symptoms that could be temporary, but if they would have done it in a more conservative way, then maybe they wouldn't have felt those symptoms. But if working with a professional, it sounds like you're saying you can move through some of these things based on your professional experience. The framework is what's important, but 
the specific numbers of exactly how many things that's just what was being studied. And so it's like, we're putting out exactly what we researched, but you should, if you are trained and you know, these patients, you should feel comfortable to move them through this almost like a program with you giving guidance, but knowing that professionals can take liberty to make adjustments based on their patient, based on their patient symptoms, or just based on their their patient as a whole. So I I love that about this part of our talk because sometimes you aren't able to say that during a research study. You're there to present the data, and if you're making a training program, you also need to just present it in a simplistic way. But this article that you just published really went into exactly the implementation. So I I love that. That's what we try to do because, as I said before, in for the mandatory food, I feel that I need to scream it. You just, I want to give you the freedom. If you know what you are doing, you just need to keep the principles of the diet, right? So, if you are keeping the principles of the diet, you have the liberty to feel and understand your patients as you did before you had the CDD. And this is the message that we really try to do. And it's true that we need to have the research to support it and to see that it works. And even that when I want now to add some stuff, I will ask myself and I will try to, can I add it or can I not add it? And I will just, in some cases, I will try it. And for instance, I added yogurt from phase one and uh, natural yogurt and it works well. And I said, okay, for my patients, I can do it. I can't recommend it to others. Right. I don't know what you have, or I don't know if it works, or if it, maybe yeah. only my patients in several patients, and I don't even know. So it, it's not something that we, when we don't have a study to support it, it's really yeah. it's, we're struggling. With You're that. kind of doing it off label, right? Like there's lots of things that are done off label that are probably still the best decision for the patient. And I think that having that program, which I think we'll talk about that a little bit further in the show, but I think without knowing anything, you know, you're just coming in, having all those guidelines are extremely important. Like this is a place to start, especially when you're trying to help manage your patients, get experience with the diet. I think having those specific numbers was very important for me in the beginning. But then, you know, I've listened to many of your webinars and and you speak about this, knowing to have the freedom to move your experience beyond the basic information of the diet Mm -hmm. has been helpful as an experienced provider, but I needed that very rigid uh, framework in the beginning until exactly. I got that experience with it. And yeah. that, I think that was the idea, just to give confidence for confidence yeah. to implement the diet. And then when they feel it and understand the rationale behind it, and I have to say that even now with patients, I will always explain what I'm doing, right? And yeah. I think this is one very important message because I want the dietitians to be trained to understand what they are doing, why they are excluding or adding some foods. And for instance, even the apple, okay? The apple is there because there is one study in animal models to show that Fossilobacterium pausnici, which is a, a bacteria that is going down in chrono, we want to increase them as a good bacteria, is growing on apple pectin. Okay, it doesn't uh-huh. mean that okay, it's one study in animal models, so you need to understand it, it's not that mandatory food. You need to understand the rationale that if patients not tolerate apple because of FODMAP or stuff, it's okay. I was going to ask that because some of the, the apple, avocado, some of these things are high FODMAP foods. Yeah, so I will adjust if I have a patient that he has some uh, symptoms or I feel that we can see that there is a reduction in inflammation, but he still feels not good. Then I will try to implement and change the high FODMAP foods that we have. It's not many, but with the high foods that we have. And then we can, you know, 
try and and change it a little bit to see if we can find something that it's more comfortable for him to consume. So the FODMAP foods and then like strawberry seed, tomatoes, seeds that I get a lot of questions and people are sometimes still being told to avoid. Y'all don't worry about that at all with this. And no, it works well. And I don't think okay. patients need to avoid I use it as a great guide to say, well, this diet includes all this stuff. And for years have been saying we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be limiting fruits and vegetables. Because what I have found, Rotom, as a consequence from way back in the day of doing low Mm -hmm. fiber diets, because I've been in practice for 20 years. So low residue was definitely something 10 years ago, 15 years ago. What I found is that our patients heard that fruits and vegetables were bad for them, yes. even though that's not exactly what they were saying, but they used it as an excuse to never eat fruits and vegetables. And and then there wasn't great evidence to support that that was even yeah. true. So I use CDED as like, this is something that's being studied with patients phase one. Like, no, these are not harmful things. Just yeah. to continue to have some evidence to say a fiber restriction in and of itself is not beneficial for someone with inflammatory disease. And I, I feel disease. like some ki- some people are still thinking about low residue, low fiber, and avoiding nuts and seeds. And I'm more familiar with specific carbohydrate diet, which is very heavy in nuts. And mm-hmm. it's been successful. And well-tolerated. Yeah. And, and well-tolerated has- and successful. So it's, it's interesting. Um, and I like that y'all have emphasized that it works and the higher fiber is better and you don't have to avoid the, the seeds. There works. could be a patient where you yeah. do want to avoid it. And it, it could be a scenario, but it's not a blanket. Everybody knows that. And even in patients who have stricture, which is very important to understand, first of all, okay, the diet will be different if they have stricture or if they doesn't. But even in patients who has some stricture, we need to to explore it with the patient because every patient has his own tolerance and some patients, even with stricture, the patient that was on the diet for many years, it was amazing. He was stuck with the diet for, and then after two or three years, I think he did an MRI and repeated MRI. And then he had a huge stricture and he consumed a lot of fruit and vegetables in his diet. And I was amazed how he can tolerate it when he Mm -hmm. has such a long um, stricture. Then they said that, you know, some patients can tolerate it and some patients cannot. And then I need to explain every patient that we need to do it gradually, to spread it along the day. We're not adding everything together. Again, just to understand your patient and to talk with your patient. And if patient is coming and is consuming a lot of fruit and vegetables, should I tell him, oh, you need to stop to consume all those fruit and vegetables? And then let's start over with five strawberries. We need to have, you know, like to have some common sense. And that, that's why I like that we have the dietitian and I want to have to provide them confidence for the dietitian just to, it's not a handout that you just need to, to give. You can explain that and to empower patients when you're explaining them why you are doing what you are doing and why you're explaining them that they need to exclude the gluten or they need to avoid um, dairy product. They want to add dairy product. So why should they avoid it? So if we're putting all the information together, it's empowering us, the dietitians, and the patients. And that's what we try to do with the, um, the e-learning course that we did in Module Life. And the idea, mm. I didn't know how everything will be. And it's complicated, right? It just, I did my, um, I had some recipe booklet that, that I collected for my patients. And I had the outline and stuff that we did locally. And then we need to implement it and to do it globally. So it's really, it's exciting, but it's really complicated as well. But we try to build a course that just we put everything we know on the diet there. 
And dietitians can follow it, like, you know, it's for free. I don't have anything for it. If someone wants to know, I don't, I don't have any relationship. I just help them with the, with them providing the data behind it and supporting it. And I think that this is important if you want. And again, as you mentioned, if you don't have enough experience, you can just go through the training and the modules that you have there to learn about it more, to have some more confidence, and then it will be much easier to, to implement it, you know? So I think it's important. That's what we try to put, you know, like we have the evidence. We try to put, to have, to provide the data to support everyone. And I'm giving my email to everyone who wants and have some questions because I really want to help to implement the diet. And I hope it will help and people will use it, you know, like how they should. And that's why the, the review that we have, that we put together, we really try to collect people that are experienced with the diet and have a lot of like many years of experience and they can have their voice and their input and how they implementing the diet. So it was really interesting to hear them and to learn from them. So, and it was one of the most exciting projects I ever did. I really enjoyed it. It's a very cool publication. So I can, it, it, it felt so clinically applicable and validating um, for someone who's been working with the diet. So if you don't work with the diet, I think it will help push you through your journey faster because you will not have to question so many things. I think the Modulife training program is imperative to doing this diet because it does explain all those things that you just, all the background knowledge of the diet, oh. which I feel like as dietitians, that's what we want to know. Answer this question. Well, why? Well, why? Well, why? And it helps with that. And some of those whys are, that's because that's what we did in the study. You know, there's like that's the it. best guesses. And I wonder, Rotem, I can't remember if you have said this before in, in another presentation, but I do feel that this is as challenging as a restrictive diet is, it's not as difficult to implement as other diets because the foods that were chosen are pretty affordable, at least in, you know, in the States. They're pretty kid friendly. Chicken's pretty friendly and potatoes are very friendly for kids and apples and bananas and rice and, and, and pretty affordable. It doesn't require you to have to go to a specialty grocery store. So, and all the things that you considered, you considered epidemiological studies and you considered animal studies. Did you also consider economic? <laughs> it's not only economic, it's what children will like, like orange juice. Okay, we, we thought that children will like orange juice and it will make them happy. Okay, we are happy. And I think we should differentiate between the evidence that we had about the food we needed to exclude it. And then what we had in the diet we chose food that will be something that you can use globally. You can eat it everywhere. You can have it. It's not some of, some of them, like the, the strawberries usually based on seasons, but most of the apple you can find all the year and the bananas and so on. So, and the chicken, it's something that you can, fresh chicken, you can find that almost everywhere and eggs. So we really try to find foods that it will be easy to follow, easy for children to like. And I think that in, with time, I'll learn that the most important thing is the recipes behind it. You have many recipes. You have some snacks and you have some uh, sweets and you have some cakes and stuff to give them to, oh, okay, maybe I can do it. Maybe I can do it even in the meeting. And I remember that in the first handout that we had in our hospital, 
we added their two recipes of the pancake and some cake because we wanted them to see. You see, it's something. It sounds good, right? You you can have a pancake. You have it here, right? So you give them some hope that they can choose and they have some control on what they're mm-hmm. using. So, and it's not so boring. Yeah, it could be very filled with flavor. Chicken by itself is not filled with flavor, but you you know the diet you, you can, can make have it like in ten herbs and seasons. Yeah. Not ten, in like in yeah. million different ways and it will be still and that's why I'm every time I'm explaining to patients you need to try to um, not to eat every day the same it, it will really it cause you fatigue very soon from the diet and then we, we will miss what we, we want yeah mm-hmm. and we've learned that from exclusive ventral nutrition yeah, exactly. so we want to to try to have some and you can have some recipes and just try to use it and I have to say that from the other aspect that it's very important to know when patients should release, right? Yeah. Because this is yeah. another point that I feel that some patients want to follow the CDD phase one forever, but it's not the idea. And then I need to work with those patients to go uh, to eat and to introduce the food. And I'm explaining them, this is not a protocol. This is a restrictive diet. We don't want them to follow it forever in emotional point of view and also in nutritional right you and in some cases i will have patients that they say that the diet works well they feel better they feel better than they used to feel in all their life and they don't want to go back they're afraid to go back and i'm finding myself like discussing with them how important it is to integrate new food and then we should choose the food that they like together and let's try just a little bit and and so on then i think it's a very important point that dietitians should keep in mind all the time because some patients taking it very seriously and doesn't want to let go and we are there in order to tell them hey come on it's very important to know when we want you to exclude everything when the inflammation is up and and when we want you to release and I think yeah. it's with the formula. Some patients said, oh, I need to, to consume all the time the formula. I said, I don't mind if you consume the formula forever. As long as you're okay with that, as long as you feel good and it makes you feel good. I need to keep the formula tight when I need the formula, right? Yes, right. If you can tolerate yeah. it and you're okay and you're okay with it, I don't care that you will continue with that. But as long as you are happy. If you feel that you need to convince yourself to consume it, then stop for a while. And then when we will need it, you can go back happily. Pick it back up. Yeah, absolutely. It's just continuing to foster that good relationship with food and to continue to be Mm -hmm. excited about food and not to have any maladaptive food behaviors. And Yeah, that's what I worry about with these. Yeah, I mean, I think as long as you're aware it may happen even though you have awareness but should be screening our patients and i have patients on other restrictive diets that have a hard time moving beyond because when you feel good you don't want to rock the boat but um you could also still feel good and have enjoyable moments with your family by eating other things too so i love that point of it yeah at the end of the day and that's why i'm trying to the message yeah. I'm trying to give them. You need to be a balanced diet. You need to have a very good diet and healthy diet. And some occasions you will go out and some occasions food is life, right? Food is everything. Mm-hmm. Is, is Everything revolves around food. <laughs> yeah. So you need, it's a passion and something that yeah. it's okay. That's 
food is passion. We just need to find the time that uh, the, this food is, is good for you and yeah. the time that you can use different food. And as long as you keep it balanced. And I think that's what your recent publication definitely highlights that this is a journey and a lifestyle. And what it hopefully will do is patients will just adopt different feelings about food. And so if you turn it into a lifestyle, it doesn't mean that there might be a food that you may never ever have. You you might have that food. You just won't have the same relationship with it that you had previously if that food wasn't really supporting health and well-being and more for pleasure and other things. And that's, I think, what you've described CDED is. At, further out, it, you know, it's just right. really trying to change your outlook mm-hmm. on food and nutrition. Yeah, I exactly. think that's a great point. We want them to keep some kind of uh, principles over time, but they will go back to it almost everything, right? If you see even in the list of the foods that they should not go back to consume, it's only five things that really, it's, it's something that everyone should not eat, like highly processed food, highly processed meat. Right. And some soft drink, it's something that we are not recommending to all populations. So sure. It's yeah. not something that is very unique for them. So even we know when I'm explaining the patients, another point that it's very important to explain is that, that it's temporary. It's not yeah. forever, right? It's not that I'm asking you now uh, to sacrifice your life forever. Let's try to um, understand first if you're responding to dietary yeah. therapy. And uh, what we showed in one of our studies that even after three weeks, we can see a very high response, right? So we can understand, just try a short course of dietary in, in, in intervention. See if you're responding. If you're a dietary responsive patient, it's something that it's a present for life. That's how I see it, right? And I will say it. If you respond to dietary therapy and in children, it's around 70 to 90%. In adults, it's more 60 wow. to 70%. But if you're responding to dietary therapy, Wow, you can you can control. It's a tool in your toolbox, right? Right. You can yeah. And I love that. It's a present. It's a gift it for life. And if you respond to it, that's great. Exactly. And just need a short time. Let's try and see if you will respond. If you will feel better and we'll see you respond, let's continue. And if not, and you see that it's very, very difficult for you, we will think about different approach. And then when you give them, you know, like the hope of small steps, let's try and see. And then when they start to feel better, I said, Oh, okay. I can try to do it uh, for a long time. Yeah. Then, yeah. Positive reinforcement, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And another point that was important in the development is to understand that we don't want to have like one diet and that's it. We understood yes. that, that this is a progress. And we wanted what we learned from me and that we know what to do with six weeks, but we don't know what to do after. Yeah. And we wanted, really wanted to find a solution to make it oppressive, right? So we designed the diet that it's not that the food that we are adding at phase two, it's something that, oh, you should consume a red meat. But if you miss it, you can eat it once a week. As I explained, it, it's not evidence-based, but the idea is that like small exposures, right? I yeah. said, okay, if you consume like once a week red meat, and we know that red meat is not supporting the bacteria that we want to support them, right? But if you eat it only once a week, then they will, the, the bacteria will raise, but then they don't have some something to consume to continue with Correct. it. Correct. 
So we've had such a great discussion so far, but um, we have a few questions that if someone's just not as familiar with the diet, they're going to be more, not our nice philosophical discussion we've had so far that's been so fantastic, but more just like questions that some people have about the diet. So Rotom, this diet has three phases and we've alluded to that a lot during our discussion already, but can you just briefly describe what's included in phase one and then phases two and three? Just kind of briefly, what's a part of those different phases? Okay, so the first phase is the most important phase and most restricted one. When we just excluded everything we saw in animal models or epidemiological studies to show some kind of association with inflammation. Um, so basically patients can consume uh, in terms of protein, they can consume uh, a chicken breast and fish and two eggs per day. And they can also have some rice and potatoes and some fruit and vegetables that we chose. Again, we have the banana and apple that are more recommended. But if patients cannot tolerate it or don't like banana, that doesn't mean that we need to force him. We can give him a different fruit or vegetables because we do want to encourage them to consume. But just keep in mind to see the amount of fiber that is out there. And also we have some condiment for cooking, which is very important because as yeah. I mentioned earlier, we want to keep some variety of food. They can use almost all cooking methods. We don't recommend deep fried, like we don't recommend deep fried to all population. But other than that, they can use all the other methods. And in terms of the seasoning, they can add every fresh herbs and they can have pure spices, meaning that the pure, they know the one ingredient. It's not a powder of something that you don't understand what the ingredient or mix of something. And then they can have some orange juice, freshly squeezed. So this is the main idea of the diet the ingredients that they can have during the first phase. Okay. Then we added the, the second phase and we, we started to introduce back some food that we, they are kind of the principles, right? We added gluten and we added red meat, but still keep it a limited amount and they can have some red meat. It's not that we recommend them to consume and we will recommend them to consume only once a week. Again, the idea of small exposures, only once a week, small amount of low fat and red meat and they can have a gluten. And even with the gluten, they can eat a bread and we will recommend them to, of course, prepare it home if possible. And if it's not possible to buy it from a small bakery and not from a package with all the ingredients and all the processing inside. And I have to say that in recent years, I use more uh, spelt because I know that even in terms of FODMAP, it works well and it's easier to digest. So I do recommend all my patients to consume spelt bread. And then I will decide it will be whole bread or depends on how stable they are in terms of consuming fruit and vegetables and fiber in general. And then you have the tuna can. It's something that's easy for them to take, you know. So again, to think about th foods that will be easy to implement. And they have some uh, tahini, if they like, and some uh, baking soda, uh, baking powder in order to make the food a little bit more uh, textural. Yep. Um, that they increases those baking options in that second phase exactly. yeah and oats and stuff so we started to introduce and of course fruit and vegetables you can see that there yeah. is a gradual uh, introduction from week seven they, we can add more and more and then from week 10 they can consume almost all fruit and vegetables that are out there and um, so it's also something that we need to remember and the third phase the idea is just lifestyle as you mentioned earlier the idea is to educate them how to change from we want to keep the principles but we want you to have some normal life and in order to make it 
you know, like better to understand some, we gradually expose them to other foods. We try to implement the idea of free meals. And it's not something that's easy to investigate, right? It's, it's everyone eats whatever they like in the, in the free meals. But we do have a study in adults that showed that 50% were able to maintain remission after six months. And now I finished the, the diatomics trial in children and I see that patients can still tolerate and maintain remission over time using the CDED as an approach. So the maintenance phase could work. We still need to you know, like finalize it. And I'm not sure that we are really, we understand very well the first two phases. The third phase, even I'm struggling with that a little bit, trying to make it more like Mediterranean diet approach with a small exposure of free meals. So we need to still work it out, but this is a program, right? So I'm really trying to explain patients to implement it. And during the third phase, during the weekdays, when we try to divide the diet, they can have some more fruits that we chose that we thought that it will be easier for them. And here, again, I think the dietitian have a little bit power to understand what they can add and what they cannot in, in their normal and healthy lifestyle. And then they have the free meals when they can eat different food, that it's not something that is recommended. And it's okay as long as they don't eat a lot of it. And I always like to imagine it as a pyramid, and I'm trying to explain this to patients. You need to eat most of the time well. And if sometimes you eat a little bit something that is not in the in the diet or according to the principle and the pyramid will move a little bit, it's still okay because it's still stable. I don't want it to move around, but I, I just want to keep it stable. And I don't think that small exposures will ruin everything. So we need to, to keep it balanced as much as possible. And, and then we progress with that and implement the diet and patients are adding more and more food into their daily life. And that this is the idea that we try yeah. to provide here. Now, what about the role of formula? So I was wondering the same thing. Yes. Yeah, so just talk a little briefly about the traditional role of formula. Mm-hmm. And then what if for those patients, it's like you said in the beginning that don't choose to do a formula. Uh, okay. What do you think about that? I would say, first of all, when we designed the diet, we knew that 50% with free diet doesn't work well enough. Okay. It's not that it doesn't work. It's not working well enough as we see with the with partial introduction. Okay. We can have partial introduction because we still, it's children that we try to investigate and we didn't want them to restrict the diet without us have the confidence that we are not restricting the food that we, the, the ingredients or the macro and micronutrients that they need. So we added the formula and we said, okay, let's see if it works. And then we saw that some patients didn't like the formula or tried it without, and we saw that it's okay. And we had the adult study. We investigate them, the CDD with or without the formula. And we saw that the diet works without. But I have to say that I feel better when I'm providing the formula in terms of nutritional point of view, right? I don't think that the formula is necessary to succeed with the diet. The diet works well without, but from nutritional point of view, and especially in children, I will be very tight with that. And I really want patients to, to follow the diet with the formula. In adults, I'm, I'm more flexible. If they don't like to consume the formula, I will just make sure that they have the calcium supplement. They have, and most of the time, I will recommend also a multivitamin. I will take an amnesis to see that I don't see any um, any potential deficiencies. And then I will, I will be okay with that. But 
I'm really training children. I think it's very important to still, right. it's a restrictive diet. We don't want yeah. to recommend yeah. restrictive diet for children. And so, did you say that the type of, didn't you say earlier, the type of formula doesn't matter? Because I know it was originally with modulin. The right? studies we did with modulin, all the uh, clinical studies we did with modulin. So this is the evidence we have. And okay. when I'm starting with patients, I will tell them this is what we did in the studies. But if they don't like the modulin, then we'll try a different uh, formula. And the idea is that I want them to consume the formula. So if they don't like this formula, we don't have evidence that other formula doesn't work because EEN works yeah. with different formulas as well. So yeah. I don't think that this okay. is only one formula story, but I do recommend more the modulin because we did the studies with the modulin. But again, these patients cannot tolerate it. They don't like the taste or want different formula. It's possible to do it as well. Okay. All right. Do you find that there's any benefit or do y'all check labs when you move from different phases? And if so, what labs do y'all tend to monitor? For or a calprotectin. Do you do that before we move from phase one to phase two? Or do you just... If they're improving, you just go clinic. We try to have baseline for everyone because I found that some patients are arriving after one or two months from calprotectin, and then we don't really have the baseline calprotectin. So I'm really trying to have them at baseline CRP levels, the albumin, split blood count, and calprotectin. At week six, I will ask them to come back with CRP, especially CRP, and split blood count and albumin. And carpotectin usually takes more time. So okay. I would wait for week 12. And then after week 12, after the second phase, I will do the carpotectin. And then we, we're supposed to see reduction. I have to say that not in all patients, even in the studies we see, we don't necessarily see normalization. But I want to see at least reduction in 50%. Because we need to remember that carpotectin takes more time. So I'm aiming to see, you know, like there is a response, right? It's not a reduction from a 900 to 700. They will say, okay, it's not enough for me. And we need to think about what, what happened or maybe I will check if everything is okay and if it's following the diet as it should. And the same with CRP. I want to see an effect, right? So, and in this first study, we saw that there was an effect after three weeks, right? And it's not that we are going to assess CRP levels after three weeks in the practice, and I don't think that this is necessary, but I want to see a response after six weeks. Um, so I think this is something that will give me hope. And if patients feeling better and they have a significant improvement and they came without blood test, it's okay. Sometimes I will just wait to week 12 to see because they feel better and they, they can tolerate it and everything is okay. And then I'm, I'm good enough with that. Some In some cases, it will come at week 12 with all the results and blood and stool, and then we will be more knowledgeable to understand if the diet works for them and so on. So you would expect to see a 50% reduction in calprotectin by week 12 if they're responding? After tw 24 weeks, more. It's more. Okay. After 24. 12 weeks, I would say response, but reduction in 50% between 12 to week 24. It's something that we are now investigating in the, in the studies as well. So I guess I want to see a, a significant reduction, right? If it will be 40%, it's still enough for me. But it's not like the, when it just dropped in 100. Sure. It's not significant. If it dropped from 2,000 to 1,500, it's not it's not enough for me, right? It's still elevated, and we need to we need to act, right? It's it's still very elevated, so we will need to do something else. So what do you do in that case if it only goes down by? you know, a hundred points or minimal. 
Oh. It depends. If the patient feels much better and if there is a significant improvement in his symptoms and also reduction in CRP, sometimes I would just work with him on what he ate. I would try to understand if he implemented the diet well or not. Okay. And in some cases, I will even go back because there were some cases when patients went back to phase two or even phase three, and then the inflammation came back up. And then we are going back like two, three, four weeks to phase one to see if it works well. And then we will try to reintroduce new things every time to see if there is a change. And it's a little bit demanding, right? Because I had some patients that we did some tests with the um, home taste, calprotectin home, home test to see if uh, they responded to gluten or to dairy product or to red meat. And in some cases, we can see that the, uh, I had patients who had an effect from gluten and one patient who had an effect from dairy product. It, but again, it's N1, N right? It's not something that we can yeah. take. Yeah. The they have to be very committed, I would think, to the diet because there's also medical treatment. They could just say this isn't, exactly. you know, this is challenging. I, I don't want to do this any more vigorously than I am doing. And then you would move on, yeah. right? But and you wouldn't say yeah. that it is, you wouldn't say that it's not going to work. You just have to kind of readjust the plan, go back a step, maybe give them a little bit more time and then work your way back up. Yes. But even when I feel the patient is not uh, clinically, is not improving enough as I assume that he should go. And then I will say, okay, listen, no, it's not enough. We need to, we need to add something else. I know that. And most patients that are coming to me because they don't want to have medication. Yeah. Sometimes I, fi I find myself convincing them. I'm very positive. And I really, all myself is just passionate on diet and I'm really focusing on diet when it's working, right? Yeah. But it's not good enough. Now I want to reduce your inflammation. This is my goal. It doesn't matter for me if it's with diet or with uh, medications. We need to reduce the inflammation. We want to prevent <laughs> all the potential complications and we want to make sure that the inflammation is monitored. If we can do it with diet, it's amazing. But sometimes that is not enough. And then even when I'm convincing them that it's okay to go back to medication and always said that the diet is always important, right? So then yeah. we just try to make it more like a Mediterranean diet, something more liberal, just, just keep in mind that that is, is important, but yeah. it doesn't have to be very restrictive when you are on medications and, and so on. If someone flares on phase two or three, what should they do? What would you recommend? Okay, this is a great question. And that's why I told you before that it's a powerful tool for patients to control their disease because every time that they have some flare or they feel worse, they can go back to the first phase Sometimes for four weeks, it's enough then to repeat the carpotectin levels. And sometimes it's really enough for them to go on track again. And then they're moving back to phase three. They don't need to go all the, the phases again. Oh, that's good to know. Yes. Again, it's not something that we have evidence for. Sure. But from our experience, that's what we did. We just went back to like four weeks five weeks to the first phase and then they went back to their normal life than they used to it before and usually it works well. Another point is what they are doing when they are on medications and they are flaring. And we have our studies that was published back then in JCC in 2017 when we took a case series of patients when they had some secondary loss of response to biologics and then when 
they asked us, we want to try diet. And he said, okay, let's try diet. And it worked amazingly in 62% of cases. And they had an, an improvement and they had remission. But what was more interesting is that 77% of them, and again, it's not a huge number, right? It's 21 patients that they were included in this case series. But patients were able to maintain their biologics now. So they didn't need to change amazing. medications. We just had some salvage therapy that they continue with their medications, but we help them with only with the diet. So it's very important to understand at the beginning before they're starting all the medication. And even in biologics, it takes time until they have the confirmation from the insurance company and so on. So maybe your patients should start a short course of dietary intervention until they have the approval. And then we will understand if they are dietary responsive or not. And this tool can help them for the rest of their life. So I think this is something that we still need to work with the physicians more to implement it. Even, you know, like you are giving the medications, no problem. Patients will take the medication, but maybe until they have the medication, they can start implementing dietary therapy and we will understand more about if they are responsive or not responsive and it will just probably help us to maintain it. They can use it as a bridge. Yeah, exactly. This is the word, it's a bridge therapy. Yeah, okay. Real quick, can you just give us a, a snack ideas as well as maybe one or two meal ideas? Yeah, your favorites. That are on the go. Yeah, okay. favorites and e- easy all, things. My favorite recipes is the potato chips, which are doing it in a microwave. The only problem with this recipe is that everyone are eating it from the microwave, so it won't get to the table. <laughs> it's very easy it's to good. it's very easy to prepare and it's really like it's really like chips that you're buying it's, it's the same it's amazing i was amazed at the beginning you just take it with you just peel it and then just dry it and put it with olive oil a little bit and then the the secret is just to put, put it in one layer and then layer. If it's not one on each other then you just spread it on the microwave Three minutes. There are recipes for crackers that are nice and recipes for like a butter um, uh, cookies that this is one oh, of nice. the recipes. I know not patients really likes it. And of course, the pancakes and the pita bread, which both of them are based on rice flour, but they're very easy. It's not easy at the beginning to work with the rice flour. You need to a little bit try to work with that. I had a bad experience at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) But you worked through it. (laughs) Very bad experience. But it was at the end, I learned to work with that and it was okay. And then you just freeze it at home and they can just take it out, put it on one, two minutes and and then it's okay. And so those are the the best recipes that I'm aware of that the patients really like. And also the orange cake. Are there any that are grab and go that are already like prepared that you could grab from a Whole Foods or somewhere? (laughs) Or do you have to, you really have to prepare everything? Unfortunately, currently we don't have yet some foods that they can buy because, you know, every country has their own regulation and has their own uh, stuff. So it's very difficult to find something that they can use everywhere. So unfortunately, okay. currently we are still recommending to prepare the food. Hopefully one day we'll be able to provide more 
CBD friendly food yeah. they can yeah. buy yeah. out there. I feel like over the years with Civic Carb Diet, there there have been some convenience foods, although we still don't recommend eating them often. It does make it a little bit easier. Yeah. So I was just curious if there's anything like that. Um, what about any like meal ideas like that you could pack? Like Jen was saying earlier, a challenge she has is kids that have busy sports schedules, after school mm-hmm. schedules. and Or really school, just packing yeah. your lunch. That's probably what I ask for them, that what I get for the most ideas. What do I pack in my kids' lunch? It depends if they, they can have somewhere to store the food in school. And if they have some, some place in Israel, it's common. They can bring the food and they can put it in the teacher room and then and they can heat it and it's okay. And then they will bring or cold pasta salad or potato salad or and they can have some chicken salad with the rice Those are noodles. great ideas. And with some cherries, tomatoes, and so on. And so they can take it with them and they can have sometimes the formula or they can have the crepes or the rice yep. sheets. The rice sheets are great and they're okay in something that you can take with you also. And they can have some rice noodles, you know, like steer rice noodles with chicken that they can also have or some rice with chicken balls also something that they can take with them that can last again if it's something that they should they don't have where to heat it uh, then i will use the noodles without the chicken or just noodles with some uh, tomatoes and cherry tomatoes and so on and some olive oil or the potato salads with eggs and so on so um, right. yeah and formula could be used I, sometimes course. i think and then yeah. fruits and vegetables. Oh, well, so, yeah. the pancake are very nice that they pancakes. can take with them. Pancakes or the pita bread. What about a-, a muffin? Is there a muffin recipe? Yes, of like course. There are many muffins recipes. So that was what I feel like has been so helpful for my patients is that Modulife training program that we mentioned. In addition to training dietitians or training health professionals, because you don't have to be a dietitian to go through the training, they do have an app that patients can have access to that have recipes. And so I feel like the things that you you are mentioning are all on that app and the app is with 10 languages so they can that's find recipes. excellent when we did it we collected recipes from our culture but when it's spread out with the modo life they are collecting recipes from everywhere so oh that's great yeah i feel like in the beginning we created more American type of recipes that were CDED compliant, you know, like spaghetti night or taco night or chicken nuggets, things like that, that were all CDED compliant. And so that's nice to know that they they do collect all of those. And if you Um, can send them, if you have have recipes, you can send them and then they will add it to the app. If you want, they will put your credit. And if you don't, they won't put your credit. We just wanted to collect everything in a place that everyone can share it. And I think this is a very important message if you, even if you're not using the modulized, because you need to create your own local recipes that you can provide your patients based on your, the culture that you are living in just to, to adjust the diet. And now we are just, I collected several dietitians and we are just writing a case-based discussion on how to implement the diet in different cultures and That's what the adjustment that needs to be done. So I think this is, message is very important for other dietitians to collect from their patients other ideas uh-huh. that, that can work for patients to so share it for modern life or locally yeah. just provide it to their patients. 
Yeah, we were really good at the beginning asking our patients, like once they made it through like six weeks, we're like, okay, submit us your favorite recipe. And it could be a modulife recipe if that's what they were using. Or it could be a homemade recipe. Then it was like tried and true. Like these are patient recommended recipes, but we haven't been as good with that lately. I may have to bring that back in. But there's a few other websites that do have recipe banks that include CDED. Are you aware of those? Yes, part, the CCFA. All the recipes there are okay and the nutrition for IBD. So they're also very supportive and we are in touch just to make, make sure that everything they aligned and so on. And so, yes, of course, as long as it's something that is validated and it's nice to see that there are some uh, Facebook groups for mothers and know from U.S., that they're consulting each other about the CDD. So again, it's important to to consult with the, the expert if you really need some advice and so on. But it's also nice to have the connection with other people that are using the yeah. and to learn from them. And I think it's also helped for children to follow the diet. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything you would change in the diet? You mentioned uh, the wording on mandatory foods earlier, but is there anything else that you would change? And this is the most important part, the idea of the mandatory food that I would change. And I also really patient to know more ingredients, if we can add them. And I hope we'll be able to investigate uh, other ingredients that can be added from first phase or even from second phase. And it's something that will build up and we'll see probably more and more group or that are adjusting the diet to their own local um, ki- kitchen. And then we'll learn more about the ingredients. So the, the future of the diet is looking to see possibly if if more ingredients can be added, more foods or? The future, as I see it in my imagination, is more personalized approach when we will be able to understand patients based on their microbiome, the baseline microbiome, based on the inflammation, the disease location, food preferences, and so on. And we will be able to personalize the CDD and to understand if this and based on AI, of course, to understand if those patients can should reduce exposure to all the food ingredients, or maybe they should focus on only one or two food groups that we excluded, and then it will be much easier to implement it and we understand more. But again, this is a long future. Yeah. Do you uh, see y'all ever testing people's microbiomes and being able to tailor the diet that way? Have now they. First of all, there are studies to show it not in CDD, but there are studies from Weizmann Institute and other uh, groups that I'm trying to understand if they can um, have some personalized approach based on the microbiome. I think that we are not there yet, but the microbiome has a huge impact on this. And it's not only the microbiome, of course, but we need to collect information about the patient and in 10 years from now, I believe that we will get more information about the microbiome. I think that now we only started to understand what's going on there. And we, as much as we are deeper in, we understand that we don't understand anything. And it's amazing. It's really exciting, all the experience and, and studying on the microbiome. But I think, yes, in a few years from now, we will have more results to, to understand patients better and to focus more on the microbiome. And then we can tolerate it and we can implement the diet better than we are doing now. And this is the very long distance future. If I need to focus on the upcoming future, I think I will see more and more groups that are implementing the diet and are adding more ingredients that will give us more, uh, you know, like confidence to add 
in our practice and to implement. And I think it's a journey like we saw with the FODMAP, right? The FODMAP started as a very restrictive diet. And with time, we saw that it doesn't have to be so restricted as it used to be in the past. And we have the ideas of gentle FODMAP in some cases. So I think that we just started and this is our first decade to investigate the diet. And we know that it works. And I think that's what we needed now and for now, so we'll be able to improve it. But I think we have now um, a very nice body of evidence to support that the diet works. And it's not only in Israel. It's not only studies that we've done. It's really exciting. It's like your child went and is going, is walking alone and is independent. And some studies that I don't even aware of, or just read the publication. Is, oh my God, it's so exciting. That has to be so exciting it's for so you. So exciting that other groups are implementing the diet and it works well for everyone. So it, it's amazing. And I think now I have enough confidence that the diet works in different countries as well. Now we need to improve it. And this will be the near future, I believe. That's wonderful. So Rodam, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. I've learned so much just in this last hour. It's been amazing. Do you have any final comments you would like to make about CDED before we end the show? Um, first of all, I think we covered many and it was a very interesting discussion. I really enjoyed it and I'm really passionate about the CDED and how to improve patients' care with implementing dietary therapy. And I hope that more dietitians will join and investigate and be part of it and will learn more to be expert in the field of IBD and especially to have experience with the CDD and more confidence with that. I think this is a good diet and good start for patients and that can give them hope. Um, we still need to keep in mind that food is nice, food is fun, food is good, and we still need to keep this message for our patients in order to keep the positive relationship with food. And the CDD works amazingly, but we need to remember when sometimes it's not the best choice and it's okay even to understand and the diet should Im be implemented as instructed because this is the evidence we have. It's yeah. not that we are trying to make it strict as, as possible, but this is what we have. And just try to enjoy. I agree. Thank you, Rodham, so much. And we really appreciate you being our guest today. And, you know, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, oh, that was such a great episode. Rodham is certainly the authority on CDED. Yeah, she was great. I think I could have talked to her for a few more hours. <laughs> but um, three takeaways from talking with Rodham today would be, um, number one, that the diet works by exclusion. So it's okay if the mandatory foods are refused by the patient. The diet will still work. Right. Uh, and my takeaway, which is the second takeaway, is it is okay if someone doesn't include the formula as part of their treatment uh, due to taste or cost or just preference. But it's a good idea if they can tolerate it because it provides such a great source of nutrition for growing bodies or help to correct malnutrition um, while they're starting kind of a restrictive diet. If our patient chooses not to do formula, we should definitely do our due diligence as dietitians to make sure that they are getting complete nutrition and supplementation if needed. Yes, absolutely. So the third takeaway would be that the, this diet can be used temporarily as a bridge while we're waiting to start medications, whether it's we're waiting for insurance approval or family decision making. And at least then we know if the patient is diet responsive, which like Rotom said is 
kind of like a gift to them. So if they need additional therapies in the future, we know whether or not diet would be a good add-on therapy for them. Absolutely. We want to mention the application site is now open for Naspigan's Nutrition University, or N2U. N2U will take place April 12th and 13th, 2024. The course is designed to provide specialized nutrition education in areas associated with the practice of pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition. Eligibility for dietitians include active CPNP membership and less than five years experience in pediatric GI. The deadline for applications is February 9th. We will link the application in the show notes. If you don't already, please consider following the show. We will announce upcoming episodes on the CPNP social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we will include CDED resources and Rotom's recent publication in the show notes for this episode. If you are a CPNP member and have a topic idea, feel free to email us at cpnp at naspigan.org. Nutrition Pearls podcast is supported by an educational grant from Wreck It Me Johnson Nutrition. The content is the sole responsibility of the hosts, not influenced by its supporters, and the information discussed during these episodes are subject to change over time with new developments and advances in the field of medical nutrition therapy. Thanks everyone for listening. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.